Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air, and I am uh, Jim Grant. And with us today, as uh, it is customary, Eric Whitehead, who is sitting at the keypad, which also is the control panel. And uh, the great Evan Lorenz, the deputy editor of Grant's, is sitting across the table. And to my right is uh, Phil Grant, who writes our indispensable almost daily grants, which you can read just for asking to read it, right? That's right. Yeah, and you should do that. We are sponsored today uh, by Away Travel, which makes the fabulous suitcases, and by W.W. Norton and Company, a book publisher that has the good taste and judgment to be publishing soon, like in like 10 minutes, a book about uh, the fellow who uh, invented moral hazard. Actually, the book is titled uh, Badgett, the Greatest Victorian, and, and I wrote it. Yeah, that book's coming out soon. So uh, we have a guest. We are not just the three of us or four of us sitting around talking about stuff. We have a guest, and he is uh, Jeff Snyder, who is the head of global research at Hell Ombra Alhambra Investments. Hey, Jeff, isn't Alhambra like a really big fort in Spain that is meant to signify invincibility and protection against all dangers, domestic and foreign? Yeah, it's been there for a very long time. So it's more than just a message of standing the test of time. So this fortress took its name from your firm, didn't it? (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think that's right. Right. Well, uh, we'll go with it. Right. I mean, what's the compliance department going to say? It's already out there. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So Jeff, we we have observed that uh, because we are interest rate observers, we have observed your really intense and studied interest in something called the euro dollar curve. It's a it's a, a yield curve of euro dollar futures contracts and yields, and um, it's not the first thing that many of us think of when we get out of bed in the morning. And I would like you to explain to the readers uh, what it is in the first place and why it interests you in the second. Tell us first, if you would please, what we are talking about. The euro dollar futures contract pertain to forward expectations of money market rates, think, uh, something called LIBOR, which is an offshore euro dollar rate. And all it really is, is, you know, it's a big market where investors are trying to make sense of what's going on today and what happens today, how that will play out in the future. And that takes into account a whole number of things, including the current state of the economy, as well as monetary policy. What is the Fed going to do? All right, so what is a, the Fed going to be able to do? Right, so it's a forward-looking uh, market, and uh, you can, I suppose, tell by uh, just observing the shape of the curve what the market is thinking about. And I know a year ago, uh, the market was thinking something different than what the Fed was thinking. Tell us what it was thinking then and what the market might be saying now. Well, go back a year. The Fed was thinking, you know, inflation's going to break out, economic acceleration, all the good stuff that we really want to see. And the way that would have played out in Eurodollar futures is the curve would have steepened. You would have seen forward expectations for money rates rise along with, those, with, with what the Fed was saying. But instead, the Eurodollar curve, like the Treasury curve, was hesitant and even resistant to that type of scenario. And the, uh, the overall curve shape flattened out dramatically. So the curve was, was prescient a year ago. Yeah, the curve, you know, the short end was we have rate hikes, so we have to factor those into future money expectations. But going out a little bit further into the future, the curve was saying, okay, you know, Jay Powell might get a few rate hikes in or a few more rate hikes in, but he's going to have to turn around at some point. Okay, so he has turned. And what's the curve saying now, Jeff? The curve saying is there's rate cuts are coming, <laughs> not just one. How many? Well, it's, it's tough to say. You know, we're dealing with probabilities. Anytime you look at forward expectations, right. it's a probability distribution. Right now, I mean, if we take the curve literally, it says we should expect three to four rate cuts in the next year or so. But what that really says is the market's, market's thinking, you know, what is the downside here? 
And so what we're really saying is the probability of something like a return to ZERP is rising. So, uh, Jeff, how does the euro-dollar futures curve differ in its outlook and in its predictive record from the federal funds market? I think the federal fund, as you mentioned, talking about federal funds futures, yes. but the federal uh-huh. fund market itself is, is uh, it's just a liquidity barometer for what's going on today. Right. I meant mean, the futures market, yes. Uh-huh. Well, euro-dollar futures has a pretty pretty really good uh, spotless track record for predicting what, what money rates are going to be. You can look at it uh, all through uh, the past. Go to past recessions like the dot-com recession in 2001. The Great Recession in 2007, Eurodollar futures picked up on what was coming long before it became any kind of mainstream story. They were telling us that rate cuts were going to be ahead of where they actually happened. Um, so, Jeff, the um, this is Phil. If we look at, say, a chart of the two-year yield, which is um, uh, often tied into policy expectations, we can see that sort of policy error uh, thesis that you mentioned sort of playing out, you know, two years ago, or sorry, in November of 2018, uh, the two-year yield nearly touched 3% um, and has, has sh- sharply reversed. It's now below uh, 1.85. But other indicators are a little bit less clear. For instance, the dollar index remains near 52-week high. To me, that seems like it would be, it's a little curious, considering that you know we have a, apparently a consensus between uh, the Fed fund futures and euro, euro dollar markets that we're going to see multiple rate cuts later this year. How do you what do you make of the of the of the strength in the dollar right now? Actually, I think that's pretty consistent. Uh, when we look at the dollar strength, to me, that's that's indicative of what's driving euro dollar futures to think about rate cuts, which is a liquidity problem. When you have a global dollar shortage or liquidity problem. That tends to be dollar positive. And so to see the dollar strength, it's not, it's not indicating strength in the U.S. economy or even relative interest rate differentials. What we're talking about is monetary condition whereby, you know, if there's a shortage out there, dollars, to put it very simply, dollars are in high demand. And when dollars are in high demand, that usually does not work out to very good things in the economy or the markets which is why we're getting the sense that they're rate cuts. Uh, uh, Jeff, this is Evan. So the market, whether you're talking about Fed funds futures or your dollar's futures, are betting on like three and a half rate cuts over the next 12 months. And according to CFTC, the um, forward positions of traders also are betting on a stronger dollar. It's not just that the dollar's stronger now, but they think it's going to get even stronger going forward. Historically, when when the Fed cuts, the dollar weakens, and that's actually part of the whole point of um, you know easing monetary policy. You make trade a little more efficient. Just how bad do things outside of the 50 states have to be for both the Fed to cut three or four times and for the dollar to continue strengthening from this point? Well, you know, how bad is it? That's a difficult question to answer, but I think what we're talking about here is more than your garden variety slowdown, right? We're talking about something on the scale of a, a, a global recession that that that, uh, that does a lot of damage in a lot of key places. You know, we're already seeing something like that in Europe. Germany, for example, the manufacturing sector is a mess. Chinese data has been pretty bad so far uh, lately, and so I think... You know, there's a lot of economic risks that are beyond risks, actually. They're actually materializing outside the U.S., and that is feeding into perceptions, just, you know, in broad terms, hey, something's really not right. Jeff, I'd agree with you, but I read the newspaper, and there's been no end of experts who tell economic Luddites like you and me that central banks have got it covered, and there's no more economic cycles going forward. Um, can central banks do anything to forestall this slowing or kind of boost activity or, or you know, keep this expansion going? If you look at just the bond market or even the euro-dollar futures curve, they were already saying that wasn't true. The fact that the yield curve flattened out at around 3% nominal was already a very good indication that, hey, nothing has been fixed in the last 10 years. But you don't see flat curves down, down near the zero lower bound unless something is really wrong. And we can get into all sorts of market indications where that, that viewpoint has been confirmed. 
firms, you know, swap spreads, for example, they've never normalized, even, you know, all these years later. And what that tells us is there's something wrong in the monetary system, that banks and financial participants are very concerned about liquidity, even today, you know, 11 years later, all these QEs, all these bank reserves of the Fed supposedly created, the people who are inside the financial markets and inside the monetary system, deep inside of it, are saying, you know, there's something wrong here. There's something still wrong here, and it's getting more wrong by the day. And by what, the week. What, what's wrong, Jeff? Well, a lot of it has to do with the fact that, um, you know, what happened in 2008 was a paradigm shift. The, the monetary system that existed before then is broken. And because it's broken and it's never been fixed, we're just stuck with a system that malfunctions intermittently. And so we go into this up and down mini cycle when we just happen to be in another downward cycle. Mm -hmm. And so to get back to your question before, I mean, you know, the central banks can say that they're going to reduce interest rates and that's going to help. And maybe even we'll get another QE. They've been talking about negative interest rates even because of the low altitude of interest rates so far. But you know, what the market is saying is those things are not going to help. And that, that's what the curves are all telling. Well, this sounds like, the, in a way, the council of despair. What is one to do? No, I'm not, talk I'm not talking about protection for the individual. What you seem to be a, a very close student of central banks. What, what should they be doing? They should be understanding that their monetary policy, first of all, contains no money in it. And second of all, their entire framework for understanding the monetary system is, is flawed. It's, it's outdated. They're using a 1950s view of the monetary system in a highly complex, global, worldwide, you know, uh, large banks, complex system that just doesn't work the way that they think, seem to think it does. So, so maybe you've talked about this a few times. You said the monetary system was broken during the Great Recession and that central banks haven't realized it. What's broken and what don't they realize? What is the problem here? The problem is the way money is created in these offshore places. It's created by the banks. Um, you know, a, a money multiplier way of, way of thinking about it is, is a good way to start, but it's really about more esoteric liabilities. To avoid getting into a really deep discussion, essentially, it needs banks to grow. Banks have to expand their balance sheets in order for them to throw off liquidity, to throw off monetary resources for the worldwide economy. And what happened was, um, before 2007, that was easy to do. Everybody got bigger. Everybody got, took on risk. Everybody did everything that was wrong. And after 2007 and into 2008, everybody realized the downsides to doing all that kind of stuff. You know, subprime mortgage was just a symptom of a broader issue, which was inordinate amount of risk taking. And you can't get the, the toothpaste back in the tube. Now, once the system realized that this was an inherently risky proposition, an inherently unstable proposition, especially with no central bank backstop, because that was proved ineffective, that becomes a very different proposition for banks moving forward. And so what you've seen in the years Banks don't grow anymore. Their balance sheets don't expand. And if they can't expand, we have this, this perpetual monetary and liquidity problem. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, as I mentioned earlier, uh, this edition of Current Yield is brought to you in part uh, by a book. Yeah, by my book. And I myself would read the somewhat extravagant praise that has been lavished on pre-publication, except, uh, you know, I, you would see me. Actually, you would see me through this microphone turn red. So I'm turning this job, this pleasurable job uh, for some people, over to my good friend and indeed neighbor, Tom Stewart, whose voice you may well recognize from uh, public media, public broadcasting. So would you just do this for me? I, I wouldn't ask a second time. Just read this good, this stuff that uh, Publishers Weekly and my friend Mervyn King have Absolutely. written about this darn Absolutely. book. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll start, start with, uh, I'll read it in 
my best uh, formal way. Okay, no, well, you can, you can, uh, yeah. Available for pre-order, James Grant's Badgett, The Life and Times of the Greatest Victorian. It is a measure of Grant's talent as a biographer that Badgett appears as scintillating and charismatic as he is reputed to have been in life. Even readers not normally drawn to economic subjects will find themselves enjoying this lively and erudite biography and guide to financial Victoriana. Pre-order now. Ah, well done, Tom. You, you won't stop there, will you? No, I'd like to give All you right, another example yep. of yeah, this. Yeah. Available for pre-order, James Grant's Badgett, The Life and Times of the Greatest Victorian. This is from Mervyn King, former governor of the Bank of England and author of The End of Alchemy. The most perceptive and brilliant economic and political writer of his time deserves a biographer of equal literary merit. In James Grant, Walter Badgett has found him. And to pre-order now, visit grantspub.com forward slash badget. That's grantspub.com forward slash badget. Well, I thank you, Tom. Going back to a little bit what you said, you, you said that the world's slowing and um, that you expect the dollar to go even higher, even though you expect the U.S. to slow. When I look at kind of numbers for the first quarter, Europe is still growing. It, it actually surprised in the first quarter numbers. The U.S. actually posted okay first quarter growth numbers, even if they were, you know, pinned on things like inventory growth. H how bad do you expect the rest of the world to get relative to the U.S. and how bad do you expect the U.S. to get? I think we'll start seeing negative numbers pretty consistently, uh, pretty much everywhere. I know that there's only a slowdown indicated, even if you could, the PMIs, for example. Do you expect the US, the US to be the cleanest dirty shirt, or do you expect everybody to kind of go down together? Yeah, I don't know how you, how, how you can tell which one's the cleanest dirty shirt when everybody gets really dirty. <laughs> you know, it's difficult to pick out which one. Uh, you know, know, I don't honestly don't know what, kind, what the downside looks like. I don't think we have any real clarity about how bad it gets, other than the fact that it's very likely to be bad. A word from our friends at Away Travel. Away creates thoughtful products designed to change how you see the world. They started with the perfect suitcase, crafted with features that make travel more seamless. And now they're offering a range of essentials that solve real travel problems. So all you have to think about is where you're headed next, because getting away means getting more out of every trip to come. Great features, a lightweight and durable shell. That's it. That's the that's, that's the durable that's shell. That's a durable one. And uh, the carry-on is just sized up to make the most of the overhead bin. Ah, a perfect fit. A chronic problem aboard. A chronic problem yeah. aboard uh, flight, as as they say. And you may want to know what we're actually getting to here. And for twenty dollars off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com grant and use promo code grant during checkout. And that promo code grant is. Capital G, capital R, capital A, capital N, capital T. Let How do you me repeat pr pr that. pronounce that? Grant. Ah. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com grant and use promo code grant during the checkout. That's yes. all you've got to do. Well, thank you, Tom. You know, um, Jeff, this is Jim again. I uh, recall so well um, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, the bond market was just plain inconsolable. Uh, Paul Volcker comes in in 1979, I guess, and uh, gets the famous press conference and proceeds to uh, choke off inflation by constraining the growth of bank reserves and upgo interest rates. They go from 9% 
uh, on the weekend of the famous uh, press conference in October of 1979. And before you knew it, uh, a couple of years later, long bond was yielding 15%. And um, so everyone wanted to know what the market knew. This pointed to something uh, unique in American history. Never before had interest rates been this high. All manner of theories were spun about the meaning and the significance of the yield curve and of the level of rates. And the then Treasury Secretary, Don Regan, said something along these lines. He said, he said, I, ah, it doesn't mean anything. I've known bond traders my whole career. What do they know? Nothing. <laughs> and it turned out that what the bond market knew was that it had had 35 years almost of muscle memory that interest rates only went in one direction up. All right. So that's a windy preface to my question. We've had 35 years plus of a more or less relentless decline in rates. And now everyone is talking about sub-zero rates, the next cut, the next cut after that, and how you have to own uh, gilts, British gilts, at 90 basis points because they're going to 70 basis points. Is it just possible? This is the mirror image of the buying opportunity of 35 or 37 years ago that is now disguised and ought to be one of the great selling opportunities in fixed incomes, fixed income investments. Yeah, I think that's point valid, and I think that's probably what's going to happen. I just don't think we're there yet. I mean, look, at some point, it's going to be the worst day ever in the bond market. It's going to be massacre. It's going to be 1994 times 10. I mean, the last thing you're going to want to own is treasuries or any kind of German bonds or anything like that. But in order for that day to happen, in order for us to get to that inflection point, we actually have to have something to something behind it. We need some economic growth. We need some positive inflation expectations. And it has to be more than just central bankers spinning their models and their numbers. It has to be actual legitimate economic growth. Once that happens, I agree with you. I think we're going to see it's going to be a very bad time in the bond market. Fortunately, I don't think we're anywhere close to that yet, which is why people are talking about rate cuts, why the markets are predicting rate cuts, why the curves are so very ugly right now, uh, because we're going to go through another deflationary cycle before we get to that point where it might even be possible again. Uh, uh, Jeff, the, right now, what, what strikes me is that the market's all on one side of the boat. They're expecting rate cuts and they're expecting a higher dollar. And sometimes that's a, a little bit of a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy because if you're like a Japanese buyer of like U.S. Treasuries, if you expect the dollar to rise, you, you stop hedging. And when you hedge, you, you essentially, you sell short the dollar against the yen in the future, which actually puts downward pressure on the dollar. When you take that off, you suddenly take all that downward pressure and in fact, the dollar can rise. But what happens if we don't kind of go to global calamity and all these buyers who normally hedge start putting hedges back on and start suddenly expecting maybe higher yields from dollars. Could we actually see the dollar falling and yields explode higher? I mean, the world is well, perverse. Yeah, sure. Obviously, if it doesn't turn out that things are as bad as, as, we, as they seem right now, or as if they seem that they're going to be right now, yeah, I, you're going to have a lot of covering. People who have been long bonds are going to suddenly go short, especially if they're leveraged. So, so, so I mean, the, the way to make the most money in the market is not necessarily to be right, but to see where the market is placed in the odds and to step kind of on the opposite side. I, I've had a couple of friends who uh, manage funds and leading up to the election, they weren't necessarily pro-Trump, but they saw that the market was pricing in like this big fall after Trump was elected and they just started buying a bunch of, you know, S&P 500 futures. They said, well, you know, it, all the downsides are already priced in. And for the next week, they had a really good, good month. year. A good year. <laughs> Is, could something similar set up here? H how lopsided are the odds today? You know, my partner, Joe Calhoun, always talks about being contrarian. If everybody's on one side of the trade, you probably want to be on the other side. And that's true in a lot of cases, but I think there are certain times when, you know, the weight of evidence says this thing, you know, yeah, it doesn't go in a straight line and there's always bear market rallies and things like that. But the way the consensus is, is building, especially inside
inside the monetary system, all of these indications of dollar shortage, liquidity problems, they all keep moving in the same direction, consistent. Um, and, you know, and this is not just the U.S. problem, it's globally. We talked about U.K. bonds. You know, why, is, why are people buying Japanese government 10 years at minus 13 basis? They're obviously... Well, the, the BOG wait, wait, helps I want to hear the answer. Okay, <laughs> Jeff, why? <laughs> <laughs> why? Because there's no economic growth, and therefore you have to be hedged against liquidity problems. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. Um, why, do you, why, do, why does a hedge entail the certain loss of money, even if only a little bit of money? of the hedge. And if people are willing to pay for a hedge with a negative yield, what does that tell you about the risks they perceive? Well, what does that tell you about the people? <laughs> That's the other way to look at it. Right? What, 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 uh, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> I think S&P's uh, Japanese unit today um, put, I think, Norichunkin, which is a Japanese bank, and Japanese Post on a uh, downgrade watch because they said, and I, I'm going to paraphrase this, something along, along the lines of taking deposits and buying bonds is not like a surefire um, business model to make money, at least in Japan. Jeff, what, what are your clients? Uh, I don't think it's like that anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the idea of maturity, the old school maturity transformation, that is, uh, I mean, that's, that's an old, it's an anachronistic um, notion. Uh, that's not the way banks really operate anyway. Uh, they operate in liquidity and leverage. So the idea of owning negative yielding assets doesn't seem to make sense, but it does inside. When you look at putting together a bank's balance sheet, mm -hmm. um, that kind of hedging becomes very necessary. Uh, Jeff, a couple of times you cited a dollar shortage and you said, just look what's happening in the bond markets. When we look at the bond markets, we see something like 10 or $11 trillion worth of sovereign bonds that are trading below 0% uh, or negative yields. What, what is the evidence for dollar shortage and what does it mean for a world that is already so awash in liquidity that is pricing like something like one-eighth of global GDP at negative yields? Yeah. Called it the interest rate fallacy. When you see low interest rates, even negative interest rates, it's indicative of tight money in the real economy. It's like 1930s in the United States. The opposite being the 1970s in, in the U.S. too. The great inflation, interest rates were high. So um, low interest rates, even negative interest rates, means that financial institutions are hoarding the most, the safest, most liquid, most risk-free assets. And they're doing so because they perceive this dollar shortage I'm talking about or liquidity risk being inordinately high. So it's the only reason you would hold on to those kinds of assets. So is that why... Um, Especially given the fundamentals of the issuers. <laughs> is that why uh, the Turkish President Erdogan wants to cut rates with CPI at 20%? Is that sort of the same idea? Yeah, pretty much, right? I mean, it's, it's a lot of this, you know, when you, when you sit and you don't factor in the liquidity issue, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Jeff, apart from uh, negative yielding bonds, what are you having your clients buy to protect themselves against the, <laughs> against the future? Well, there's a, I mean, cash is always a, is a way to go, uh, depending on the client, of course, uh, risk tolerances and mandates and all that. Um, gold is another way to go, but you got to be careful with gold. Gold tends to be volatile during these kinds of periods. Uh, but there are various ways that you can hedge without necessarily resorting to a a German two or a Japanese 10. <laughs> Are you a fan of Bitcoin? Bitcoin. Uh, I love cryptocurrency. I love the idea behind it. I love blockchain. I don't think Bitcoin is the one that, that solves the problem and gets through the door, but I think it's the one that has opened the door. Um, Jeff, seriously, do you own any negative yielding securities at Alhambra? No. Well, um, that you know what? That makes two of us. I, Evan, you own any? Uh, no. Phil? Not yet. Okay. Eric? I, I like to lose money the old-fashioned way. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. I, could, I, don't, I don't need a negative yielding bond to lose money.
Also, it's, it's so easy to lose money. Why, you know? Um, uh, Jeff Snyder, head of global research at Alhambra Investments. Thank you for being with us. It was uh, really interesting to talk and uh, given us a lot to think about. And uh, I want to thank the uh, the panel as usual, including Eric Whitehead, who was going away on vacation, I think, in a couple of weeks. Uh, so many communist countries have been foreclosed because of the so-called spread of freedom in the world. But I know, Eric, what are your plans, Eric? Tanzania and Kenya. Ken, oh, Tanzania and Kenya. Not, not yet communist, but it could be. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, I think it's on the road. Dream big. Dream big. <laughs> All right. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for, on behalf of, of Grant's Interest Rate Observers, who we are. This is Jim Grant. Thank you for listening and look talking to you soon. <laughs>